Hello, world, and welcome to episode number 44 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Mike Levy, and we have a packed one this time around. I have my unpaid intern, Mike Casimir, here, as usual, and James Smirthwaite to read the news. But before we get to that, let's see how many bikes Casimir rode this weekend. Kaz? Uh, this weekend, I rode three bikes. Three bikes? Yep. I think the weekend's only two days long. You it is. Yeah, I did me. two rides on Saturday. What, what were you riding? Uh, let's see. Saturday, I rode the Cavins. That's that kind of high pivot German bike that I'm kind of wrapping up the review on. That's the and aluminum one with the uh, idler? Yeah, exactly. So 160 rear travel, 170 front. Um, yeah, pretty pretty cool, fun 42 bike. 42 pounds or? No, it's not that heavy, really. I mean, it's not your style of light, but it's it's in the lower 30s. I think maybe 33, 30, like pretty reasonable for what it, it looks heavier than it is. Like it's pretty good. So I'm sure you're going to write a read a review of this thing at some point or a video review but can you tell me how that thing rides what are you impressed with so far i think it just feels so easy for me to ride and in, in super rough technical bits of trail like when you get just a whole pile of rocks where you might not make it through all the time this thing if you can let off the brakes it'll just suck it up and keep you tracking um, and it doesn't have crazy long chain stays due in part to the uh the fact that the wheelbase gets longer as it goes through the travel. It's got a rearward axle path for a decent amount of the travel, but um, yeah, it just feels like that back end gets up out of the way. I've got it with the coil shocks. So that obviously helps, but it's definitely been the bike I've been grabbing when it's super slippery and gross out and I want some traction. So yeah, that's cool. Should I call you Mr. High Pivot? You've been riding a lot of high pivot bikes lately. Uh, no, you shouldn't call me that. I'm not convinced that they're for everybody. And there are some things like this bike wouldn't be my pick if I was super into jumping and jibbing and like just wanted to hit kind of machine built jump trails all the time. It's not the bike for that really. Um, you might be able to counteract that with like an air, an air shock would help a little bit, but it still wants to be, it's happier on the ground, just, you know, plowing through technical stuff. What, what high pivot bikes have you ridden lately? You've been on a few of them. Yeah. Um, what have I written? Well, probably can't talk about one or two. I can't talk about one of them. It comes out soon. So you could yeah. probably guess, but there is another high pivot bike coming. And then I rode the Norco Shore. So that's the last three. There's another, uh, yeah, there's another Canadian company that has a high pivot bike coming out in the future soon. And then I feel like you should maybe write something about riding all these high pivot bikes soon. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm getting pretty familiar with the high pivot bike. So yeah. Yeah. And, did you ride an e-bike on this weekend? Yeah, I rode two different e-bikes, and I had mechanicals Who on both is my this? e-bike rides. I Who know. am I talking to? Well, I'm reviewing one, and one's going to come out. It hasn't even been out released yet, so that one I have to ride also. I'm reviewing one. I bought the other one. <laughs> no, definitely not buying one. <laughs> I'm going to ride a regular bike today to cleanse my palate because I had two mechanicals. I had a One wasn't really – well, one was a DT Swiss Star Ratchet drivering, which I haven't had issues with that in like eight years since the last time I toasted one, but um, – yeah. Can, can, can I, we just stop on that for a sec? I remember years ago, I think either, was it you or I killed one in Sedona? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we talked about it and we came to the conclusion that these big cogs, huge cogs were putting a ton of leverage and maybe that was why. And it was stripping out the fine teeth of the, the high ratchet DT Swiss star wheels. Was that yeah. the case? Yeah, the same thing happened. This was a lower ratchet one. I think this was the 18 or 24. I can't remember which one it was. But but yeah, but also it's pretty cold out. It was like 25 degrees Fahrenheit. So Ooh. I'm wondering if the grease got thick and somehow the teeth weren't engaged all the way. And then when you've got the motor in there, they might have slipped past you each bet. other and just shaved off some of the teeth. 
Um, so I'd say it's a pretty fit, rare instance. Like I haven't had it. Like I said, it's been seven or eight years since that last time we saw one together. But so that was annoying because um, then I just coasted down. Well, my buddy coasted down. And, yeah. Um, so that was one failed ride. And then the other one, I got some error code on the on a Shimano EP8 motor. <laughs> and I was like, it's like when your check engine light comes on. You know how mad that makes you because you don't Wait, actually know what it is. Cass, do you just pull out your OBD2 reader that you had in your fanny pack yeah, yeah, and exactly. just plug it in? <laughs> yeah, just rolled over to AutoZone. It's like, can you diagnose yeah, this? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it was like some speed sensor thing and, and it was really cold and raining. It was like just above freezing and raining. And I'm by the side of the trail, like undoing bolts just to undo bolts for fun. And uh, I didn't fix it. So then I just pedaled it back to the car and went home. And Without the motor? Yeah, pedal it without the motor. I mean, that's the thing. You can still pedal it, but it's 50 pounds. So it's not like no motor, the big, all of the shame. There's a lot of shame. <laughs> and, then, and then somehow it started working again. Like, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> it's annoying. Was it really wet or something? I don't know. Yeah, but I it should work. Like, yeah, there's like a magnet and it should work. And then I just undid everything at home, put it all back together and it now it works. But there's no reason I should have fixed it. So no. I'm not convinced the gremlins are gone. I need to ride it some more and see what happens. Kaz, do you pressure wash your e-bikes? Do people no, do that? Uh-uh. No, yeah, you don't. probably could, but you can, they, they're water resistant ish. Like you shouldn't like blast it at, you know, like, like with any bike, you just treat it the same as any bike. Right. Yeah. So but, pressure wash the living shit out of it. Yeah, exactly. Right. In the seals. <laughs> like put clean inside those the, bearings. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So two frustrating rides. I'll fix that today by going on a good ride, hopefully. But, uh, yeah, I'll put the e-bikes in the, in the corner so they can think about what they did for a while. Yeah. James, how was your weekend? Did you ride bikes? I did not ride bikes, letting the side down. Sorry about that. I was, uh, I was spending all weekend watching the TikToks people were making about me this weekend. Caused um, oh, a bit of a stir. Right. Where, how, you're big on TikTok? I don't even know uh, that, but how did you do that? No no choice of my own, but that article I did about um, YouTubers and athletes and sponsorships and stuff, um, a few of the YouTubers picked that up, and before I know it, there's people doing TikToks about me and and also, it was a yeah, very, very new experience. Were they angry? They yeah, were they angry seemed pretty angry. Wrote? Pretty angry. Funny, people angry at pink bike articles? What's, uh, weird. What's going on? I thought TikTok um, was for dancing. So there's like YouTubers dancing and yelling at you? Yeah, just like mushing around. Like, uh, <laughs> weird. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that was a new one. But um, I, I got over it pretty quickly. Yeah, they don't sting as much as the comments, the TikToks. So. Yeah, that's so weird. weird. <laughs> But, yeah, send me a TikTok. Honestly, I feel really How old. Do you send a TikTok. <laughs> I don't know. Just tell me, uh, James, email me one of your TikToks. Yeah, you can mail me a TikTok. I'll fax it. I'll fax it over to you guys. <laughs> there we go. I want to see. <laughs> right. <laughs> they might make me mad though. But okay. Well, sorry they were being mean to you on TikTok. But uh, yeah, uh, I'll survive. Yeah. Don't worry. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we get on with the news then? Yeah. yeah we might as well. Um. Okay, well, for the first time in a long time, we have some new bikes to talk about, um, starting with the Da Vinci Marshall. This is uh, an affordable aluminium bike, um, 130mm of travel, and the frame is 100% made in Da Vinci's Quebec facility. Um, Like most Da Vinci bikes, this has a split pivot design, sits between the Troy and the Django in their range. Uh, Smaller sizes have uh, 27.5-inch wheels, but the medium, large, and extra large, uh, they're all full two niners. Most exciting thing about this bike for me is that it starts at $2,099. That's for a model with a Dior drivetrain, RockShox suspension, a dropper post, kind of everything you need in that um, kind of 
first or second um, trail bike. What did you guys think of this one? Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I'm especially impressed that it's made in Canada frame. So for, especially for that price, um, I think it's, we kind of talked earlier this year about how Dior drivetrain is going to help bikes come in at good price points that have good performance too. So uh, I'm, yeah, I'm glad this thing exists. And $2,000, I remember, I mean, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't get a good full suspension bike for that much. So. Kaz, isn't that how much your EXT fork costs you? $2,000? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Yeah, you can get one fork or one whole bike that will work really well. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, at this price point, how much it matters to people that it's made in Canada. Do you think that's something that would factor in? I don't think people are necessarily concerned about that. But in my mind, things that are made in North America tend to be more expensive than things overseas. So it's cool that they're able to bring it in at a price that's you know the same or even cheaper than you might see from Taiwan or China. I wonder if there's like a supply chain incentive behind that. You know, we've seen other brands talking about shipping delays, huge costs, shipping bikes over. The factories are really busy over in Taiwan. Um, so maybe it's, it's just as simple as um, this is the way that they can build bikes that they can release this year and, and get them to customers. Yeah, I'm sure that helps because there's definitely a shortage of bikes from a lot of companies. So this way they can yeah, hopefully stay on top of demand. Uh, next up is another North American bike, another aluminium trail bike, and it's also got a Dave Weigel design suspension system. This is the fifth version of Ibis's 120mm travel trail bike, the Ripley AF. The big news is that this is the first time in the Ripley's history that it's been available aluminium front and rear triangles. Obviously, you take a bit of a weight penalty there, um, but in return you get a slacker head angle and, of course, a lower price point. With this one, models start at about $3,000. Levy, um, Ibis called this a multi-talented shapeshifter. I know when you did your first look, you hadn't had a proper ride yet. Um, have you had a ride yet? And do you do you agree with that? I still have not had a ride yet. We got some snow here over the weekend. But I like what they're doing. It makes a lot of sense. I've ridden every version of the Ripley up until this bike, and they've all been carbon, and they've all been about being lightweight and speedy and fast. And that speediness, in my opinion, it comes from that DW link, 120 millimeters of suspension. So it'll be interesting to see how that efficient, fast-feeling suspension works on a bike that weighs... I mean, how much did that thing weigh, James? Was it was it 32 and a half pounds? You know, things get heavy when they get inexpensiver and more metal. <laughs> and that doesn't mean the bike is any worse, but you read a lot of the comments on that first look and people were like, what the hell? This thing is so heavy. But I mean, what do you want? You can't win them all. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the weights of the bikes we had last year in the value field test, they all end up around that 32, 34 pounds, just yeah, less expensive parts and aluminum frames. That's the price or that's the weight category you'll end up in. But yeah. So this one, I think we're going to have this one in our field test, Casimir. Yeah, it's on the list. upcoming value field test. I'm really interested in this bike just because I am so familiar and uh, I have been such a fan of that suspension design in the past. So it'll be interesting to see how it works on a, a lower priced model, if that translates. Moving on, we have the Fuji Rakan that has gained um, an LT or long travel version. This is some pretty significant changes here. Um, first off, a 30 millimeter increase in travel. Um, rear wheel travel has grown from 120 to 150 millimeters. The regular Rakan, that's still there in Fuji's range, but this is for riders who maybe want to push it a bit harder, just want a bit of extra travel. 
Um, the geometry has also changed pretty significantly and it now sits pretty close to Fuji's 160mm Auric platform. Um, it's got a 637 head angle, 490mm reach in size large, so some pretty progressive numbers there. Levy, you definitely ruffled a few feathers with your headline. Um, can you explain why you called it weird and did you actually mean that as a bad thing? Well, so the headline was Fuji's rack and ads travel keeps weird suspension. I feel like that's about that's accurate. Why can you be angry? <laughs> I mean they they added some travel and the bike has some really freaking weird suspension that I like. I've ridden the Auric uh, and I've ridden other Fujis with that weird M-link design. Basically, it's a uh they're changing the length of the links, and so the pivot ends up in the middle of the chain stay as opposed to at the axle or um, like a, a shorter link, shorter dual link system where it would be closer to the front triangle. And yeah, it looks really freaking weird. Um, people didn't like that I said that, but I mean, it, it also works well. I rode that Auric, and the big takeaway for me with M-Link was how... I mean, I feel like I always talk about efficiency, Casimir, but it feels it, it feels so sporty and good compared to a lot of other platforms in that same amount of travel in that travel bracket. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've I called it weird because it is. Yeah, I but think it's okay to call things weird. Yeah, people are sensitive these days. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you have to be nice to every single thing ever. But yeah, whatever. It looks a little weird. Yeah, but if it works, there who some- cares? Yeah, there were some very angry comments about it. I was support, sort of surprised about that, but hmm. I would uh, I'd keep that headline. Makes sense. Yeah. I think it's winter time. People are people are extra feisty these days. They're just looking for things to get mad about. Weird can definitely be good. Some of the coolest bikes the past few years have been the more weird ones. So. Yeah, look at that structure. Hmm. Right? Yeah, that needs a different word than weird. But um, The final new bike of the week is one you can't buy. Um, this comes from Production Privé. They've previously specialized in steel trail bikes um, and pretty much out of nowhere they've emerged with this cnc aluminium downhill bike for the brigade world cup team um, they are partnering with forestal um, they're an andoran e-bike brand production Privé are using their production facility and have also um, adopted the twin levity linkage driven linkage driven single pivot suspension um, for this bike uh, i've been speaking to damien from production Privé. He says the whole project came together in about four months, from first sketches to getting Alex Marin on the bike. Um, pretty impressive, um, considering it's a new technology for those guys. I think this is a bit of an R&D project, and we're likely to see this kind of filter down into some more of production Privé's bikes. Um, were you guys expecting this one? It seems like it came out of nowhere, really. Yeah, no, I wasn't expecting that, especially aluminum full suspension downhill bikes, probably the last thing I would have thought come from production Privé, but that's yeah, cool to see i mean it looks like like i like the the lines of the bike the shape of it and yeah interesting to see the forestall's involvement in there kind of both of those companies have been doing it seems like they're t- taking a little bit different uh track in the last couple of years so kind of curious what what else they have in the works so from new bikes to older bikes dan sat posted a throwback first thursday of some of our kind of former bikes um Kaz, you showed off a 2003 RM7 that you called an ideal do-it-all bike for jumping stairs, riding steep rock walls, and going on long XC rides. Um, how did that work out for you? Made me strong. <laughs> yeah, that bike. I, don't, I was yeah at the time I was working at a shop, and I 
there was some demo day, like the Rocky truck showed up and he had a downhill bike in the back or the RM7, I guess like a, a free ride bike basically. But, um, so I obviously grabbed the, the longest travel bike that he had. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to ride this. And it's going to be great. And then the ride we went on was a, I don't know, six or seven hour ride that went up to 12,600 feet involved a hour long hike a bike. And I pushed that bike all the way up and pedaled it. And, but then going down, I was like, Oh, this is the best thing ever. I'd never ridden a bike with that much travel and Wait, wait, Kaz, breaks. Kaz, can I just ask, when did the swing arm break during that ride? <laughs> it didn't break during that ride. I actually never oh, broke okay. the swing arm. I would break it at the shock mount because I feel like the leverage ratio on that was kind of crazy. It had like a tiny, the spring is tiny and it was like an 800 pound spring. So yeah, yeah it I'd must break have it had like an inch and a half stroke and a ton of travel. So yeah, exactly. And then it would get a lot of play in the back end like because it had bushings. So I would take washers and jam them in there and do a thing with a C-clamp to jam more things in. I had some unique uh, maintenance techniques for that bike, but it, yeah, it was cool. I mean, at the time, that's what you rode or what we thought we were supposed to ride. So we hucked off all sorts of things and took it to bike parks and, and I pedaled it too. So. Can I just say that you also had that same mad style way back then that you do now? <laughs> yeah, I, I was king of dead sailors back then. Yeah. Pretty good at them. <laughs> They've evolved a little bit. I've got like a 30 degree tilt now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, do you know what happened to that RM7 cast? Like, did it just implode one day and you got rid of it? Or did you did you sell it? Did you throw it in the dumpster? What happened? I warrantied the frame when I cracked it at the shock mount. And then they sent me, at the time I was riding size medium bikes because you were supposed <laughs> to downsize to ride little bikes back hey, then. <laughs> how, so no reach numbers. People didn't talk about reach back then. No. There's no such thing as reach. But if you had to guess, it was probably like, what, under 400? Yeah, who knows? It was little, I think. I mean, it felt big though, because I had all that travel and just felt big and squishy. And then, so I warrantied it and then they warrantied it with a large RMX. And then I moved to Washington with that RMX, like a green RMX. Yeah. And that bike felt big to me, but then that one would eat bearings and bearings just explode for no reason. And they were like a proprietary size to Rocky. So I ended up selling that to some dude across the border and then got Iron Horse Sunday. <laughs> Speaking of bearings blowing up. <laughs> yeah, that was more like, yeah, just bolts would come Heart, but yeah, it was a good time. Good old days. Kaz, there were some comments in there where readers wanted us to get our or similar bikes back, old bikes, and mm-hmm. do like a, a riding story where we ride these bikes. It'd be fun. Are you, I'm into it. I'm not. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I also there you put up your orange two two four that we'll talk about a bit, but then it was you hitting that Grafton road gap. Yeah. And and everybody was obviously they're impressed with it because it's a good shot, and they're saying how much bigger than me you go. It was or a lot went. bigger. Yeah, a lot but, bigger. Yeah, then the picture I put up for sure. But I was, I'll admit that I was tempted to drive down to Utah this weekend just to go hit that. Like there was a part of me that was like, I could just drive down there yeah. and then hit that and come back. And that would be I amazing. I but, wonder if if we went down there. To be completely honest, I wonder. I mean, that was that was a long time ago, everybody. I wonder if I would be hitting that today. I wonder if we went there and you hit it. I wonder if I would follow you in. I wonder, yeah. We should go back to your 224, though. Yeah. Because you did some stuff with that. that you were kind of in the sick. same program as me with a pedalable downhill bike thing. Oh, we were so dumb, Kaz. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Really so what I used to do is I had all these oranges because they had that straight seat tube. So I could lift the seat tube or lift the seat up and get proper pedaling height. And I would pedal it up the world's steepest fire road. And then back then, all I cared about was going fast. So I would climb up and then I would take the chain off and I would coast down all these trails with the idea being that like, if I did this all the time, 
I would get faster. And then I, I remember eventually I would like put my chain back on and then I'd just like be going way too fast everywhere and crash. <laughs> that was a sick bike though. That thing was wild. It was pretty exotic. Industry 9 wheels, aftermarket Fox 40 Fort Crown. Yeah. If you guys had to pick one bike from your like history of bikes um, to ride for the rest of your life, which one was would you pick? Like before Pink Bike era? Yeah. I think I'll go with my spooky Junebug, a hardtail. It probably these days the geometry would be so weird, but I, I like that bike so much. It have Marzocchi Z2 on the front, tall bottom bracket for East Coast riding. I'll go with that bike. I miss it. I think that if I were to pick a bike to ride seriously, I'd probably be screwed because the geometry on all these bikes is terrible, and now I have experience on good bikes. So I think I'd probably go the same lines as Casimir. I would pick like uh, an old, I went through a handful of DMR Sidekick steel hardtail frames that I used to bend, but I really like them. So it would probably be like a DMR Sidekick. And I think I had like a lowered Manitou Travis on the front and dual Atom Lab wheels, profile cranks, two downhill tubes in the back with aero tires. Like it was a 42 pound hardtail. Uh, yeah. Yeah, those tires, I remember those. Yeah, but the thing is, like, that is still today. Like, hardcore hardtails haven't changed that much, have they, kids? <laughs> no, like, they're similar but different. They're still just as terrible, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one final bit of news then is that propane has become the latest brand to address price rises and ballooning lead times. Um, they are talking about backups in sea cargo shipping. Uh, apparently, it used to cost them 10 to $20 to ship a frame by sea. And now it costs them $175 because they're going by air. Add on top of that the strong Taiwan dollar at the moment and prices are rising. Propane's other issue is that it has this a la carte ordering process where you can customize what bits you want on your frame. Um, and that means you're looking at up to 40 months waiting time, which is, I mean, that's probably going to put anyone off buying a bike, to be honest, isn't it? Common Cell have previously made a similar statement. Um, so fingers crossed these are just short-term issues that kind of clear up soon. And yeah, and their a la carte thing, you just got to be pick, careful which parts you pick because you pick the wrong one. It's like, oh, 14 months or pick the right ones, maybe nine months. But yeah, it's kind of crazy. I know every, like you said, Common Cell is like this. And a lot of companies, just bikes aren't available right now. So I think we'll probably start seeing some bikes maybe with some different drivetrains on there, different parts. From what I've heard, it's more to do with parts shortages than frame shortages at the moment. Uh, yeah, so we'll kind of see how it all sorts out. I've heard some crazy numbers for lead times for parts, like six, over 600 days and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And we are seeing, we saw that new IBIS released in only two builds, a Dior and a NX-GX combo, because, yeah, there aren't enough parts to do other stuff. Yeah, so hoard your parts. Don't get rid of your parts. If you've got a stockpile, don't put them on the buy and sell right now. You might need them. All right, so from news, we are going to go right into questions. And the first one is from Jay Westenhoff. He wants to know, Kaz, at what point is suspension just worn out? How many miles or years, even with keeping up on service, does this stuff last? It definitely seems to have an operational life. So number one, how long do you think this stuff lasts? And what should Jay Westenhoff look for? Yeah, I mean, that's a... A tricky question because there's no set timeline for when a fork is going to be totally worn out. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there with forks that are 10 years, 15 years old. But I'd say that, you know, keeping up on service, the normal, just, you know, changing the fluid, um, that's going to keep you going for a while. But eventually, you'll probably wear out your bushings. So you'll need bushings. And that's, you would notice that if you grab the 
front brake and you kind of start feeling a knocking noise, you put your hand on the stanchion, kind of rock it back and forth. And you feel that moving in relation to the, uh, to the arch. That's a good sign. Your bushings could need to be replaced. So that's kind of the, one of the more longer term things that would need some, uh, some servicing. But otherwise, I mean, there's not, they should last a long time as far as like breakages that go and things. There's nothing that's going to really, you know, all of a sudden you're not going to hit four years and things just start breaking if you're up to date on your, on your service. So, um, yeah, they can last a while. More than likely you'll get a new bike before your stuff wears out. I would say in, in a lot of cases. Kaz, can I add a couple things to that? Yeah. So two things to keep in mind. Um, one, maybe keep an eye on your stanchion tubes. And if they start to get discolored in a spot, um, you might have something, some crap trapped under a seal that's going to wreck your tubes, your upper tubes, because when those get wrecked, you have a large repair bill and it might not be worth it, especially if your fork isn't you know, a super high-end fork to begin with. Um, the, other end thing, the other thing is that when it comes to the damper is to listen. If you push down on your fork and you hear, you know, like air going through fluid, uh, bubbles and stuff like that, it may be time for a damper service. Uh, and that's obviously, I mean, that's a, that's a, oil is a consumable thing, isn't it, Kaz? So stay on top of that stuff and your stuff lasts longer. Yeah. And, you know, all the companies these days have their recommended service intervals. I know most people don't pay super close attention to them, but what I, I know, <laughs> but I'd say at least once a year for the, to do a bigger service on your fork, you know, plan on putting it right to the shop at the end of the year when the winter time, we can live without your bike. That's a good tactic. Um, and then learning how to do a lower service. If you can do that a couple times a year, that's going to help prolong the life yes. even, even longer. That's a huge, a, a good point, Kaz. Being able to just drop your lowers, it only requires a couple tools to release those foot nuts, uh, maybe a rubber mallet, and you can prevent a ton of damage by doing that and have your fork working way better than it would otherwise. All right, so there you go, Jay Westenhoff. The next question is from rstark18. Uh, he says, we all enjoy the media coverage for downhill, uh, and even I am starting to like the cross-country races more. Do you think we'll ever get as good media coverage for Enduro Casimir, he wants to know, or is the logistics of such a large course uh, holding the coverage back? Yeah, I don't think we'll see the same level of coverage for Enduro. It's just so difficult. I mean, if, you know, Picture on a weekend, each day they're doing about four stages and getting cameras and all that stuff run. Like, have you ever seen the the mess of wires that they need for a, a, just to get that Red Bull broadcast going from the World Cup downhill? It's pretty wild, the infrastructure you need for that. So, um, you know, Enduro's always been kind of focused on having these good courses and you know, semi-remote locations all around the world. So, yeah, I think the logistics are going to make coverage, like day of coverage, pretty difficult. Maybe we can see something with helmet cams, some more things like that, but... Um, yeah, for now, it kind of seems like that highlights video that comes out the day after is as good as they can do for the moment. I think a parallel to that might be WRC racing, where the the courses go all over the place, and it's just it's just not conceivable for them to have cameras everywhere. So, I mean, I love watching that stuff, but I can't follow it live. So you just you watch the highlight shows, and I think that's the solution for this EWS stuff. What do you think, James? Yeah, I agree. I think like the large area and also just like the length of the day, you know, like a downhill race, maybe two hours for the elite men, something like that. Uh, an enduro race, you know, you're talking at probably six to eight hour days on the bike. Uh, I don't think many spectators are going to kind of sit through that. I know for Red Bull, most people tune in for the, 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 the last 10 sort of elite men riders and that's all they watch. So the idea of broadcasting a, a six hour day across this huge mountainous area 
yeah, it just doesn't seem that feasible. And actually, I think those highlights videos are great. They kind of compress it into a nice narrative. And um, yeah, I think for now, that's that's what we get. But I think it's of such a high standard. I don't feel like I'm missing out too much. Yeah, I agree. I think our Stark 18, your best bet is to watch those post-race shows. And uh, they're already pretty good. And I imagine they're going to get even better. So, you know, I have a soft spot for people doing different things with mountain bikes, don't you? Yeah, you definitely do. I like those people out there that are doing the crazy things. And today's discussion, well, it's all about that. We track down Danger Home, Mr. Gustav Gullholm, who is responsible for some absolutely crazy shit. Brian Park and I talked to him about some of his wild bike projects. And that's what's playing next. So the internet is full of interesting bike people, but one of the most curious has to be this guy named Danger Holm that has assembled some of the wildest mountain bikes we've ever seen. His real name is Gustav Gullholm, and he first popped up on my radar back in 2017 when he took two Scott cross-country bikes, a scale and a spark, and built them up to be somewhere around 14 and 16 pounds. These are 29ers as well, too. And he didn't just throw the lightest parts at them. I mean, he definitely did that. But he also went to some pretty extreme measures to to shave as many grams as possible. And that included stripping the paint from each, but also going crazy with the details. I mean, the guy had a carbon fiber derailleur hanger made. He's had carbon fork top caps, carbon volume spacers, crazy shit. Gustav... We're stoked to have another crazy person on this podcast. Thanks for having me. I hope to be the craziest one yet. (laughs) (laughs) Whereabouts in the world are you doing all this crazy stuff, Gustav? In a small town in the middle of Sweden. So, uh, yeah. Are you in the Are you in the depths of winter right now? Then are you Are you having like a thirty minutes of daylight and you're just spending twenty hours stripping a carbon frame? Well, I wish I could strip. The, the the frames were 20 hours a day, then I will get <laughs> a lot more builds done. But uh, otherwise, that's pretty much correct. Yeah. Yeah. You got to you know, I, I got to hit, hit the gym too, build, build my legs and uh, yeah, actually go to regular work too. But otherwise, spot on. What's uh, what's the regular work? You uh, I can't imagine there's a ton of people buying bikes at the bike shop right now. No, but luckily we sell a lot of skis and stuff right now. So so yeah, <laughs> but but I am a full-on shop rat, so to say. I've been working in bike shops all my life. I started working I like when I was like fourteen. You are probably the ultimate shop rat, Gustav. <laughs> I think a lot of people have been. I mean, a lot of people in the bike industry and some people listening too have spent their time in a shop, and we've all done things and i've got pictures of crazy things but they pale in comparison to the stuff you've done we're going to get to that but first i want to ask you your instagram has blown up over the past three or four years uh with this these projects that you've been doing i want to hit on your name danger home where did that come from i actually started out because me and my buddies we we really love this like you know super bad action stuff like small sketches of people not even being Chuck Norris, but just pretending doing similar stuff. As so, <clears throat> so when uh, I was going to start an Instagram account, we simply started doing small, super stupid sketches and stuff. And it had to be like an action name. And uh, with my real name being uh, Gull, Henk Gullholm, 
And uh, gull in uh, Norwegian, where I'm from, it means gold. But in Sweden, gull is kind of kind of means cute. So so danger was the perfect opposite for for that. So that's how how, how it started. <laughs> I feel like we should call you Mr. Holm, maybe on your Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could work too, I guess. Maybe it's already taken. I have to check. <laughs> so let's let's go back to 2017 when those first two Scots came out. One was, I think, under 14 pounds. The hardtail was under 14 pounds, and the full suspension bike was like around 16 pounds. Were those the first crazy projects that you've done? And uh, definitely not. I mean. Uh... I feel like I've, I saw you do some wild builds on the forums back in like the 2010s, maybe even earlier. Yeah, yeah, that, that's correct. I, I built a few, built three very, very lightweight uh, Trek Session downhill bikes. And uh, one of them, the one I built in 2010, was probably like the first downhill bike below 30 pounds yeah. uh, with, with proper DH casing tires and so on. So, so this has been going on for a long time. It's just that uh, with the cross-country bikes, yeah, I started telling more people about what I did, and it went from there. I think I spent probably $12,000 back in the early 2000s, maybe 2005, trying to get an orange downhill bike to get to 37 pounds. I remember just being <laughs> obsessed with this. <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're doing these projects, are you setting out? Is your goal simply just to make the lightest possible bike? No, everyone, uh, every every project has like this kind of specific and sometimes very different end goal, so to say. So sometimes it's to to build the the lightest in in that category, but otherwise it's more like. Uh, have an idea of, of maybe getting a, a certain look for a bike or something like that. For example, with the <coughs> British racing green bikes uh, I built that uh, were car-inspired, and I, I simply wanted to, to bring that race car image onto a bike. And uh, um, so, yeah, it, it, it varies. I saw that you're beautiful. you're currently stripping that bar. It made me very sad. Yeah, <laughs> that was actually the the last piece of, of green I had left, but oh. still have a can of paint, so maybe it will reappear sometime. <laughs> I, I I can get kind of kind of restless with the. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I build I build something and I enjoy it for say a year, and then I look at it and just like I want something new now. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have a endless supply of bike parts and bikes. So sometimes you simply gotta repaint something old you have. Or, or I like that way better. It's way more fun to see somebody repurpose things, and especially now where it's really hard to get bike parts and things yeah. for a lot of uh, just availability sucks so when when things feel old it's kind of cool to refresh them rather than rather than yeah, exactly. throw it out or sell it on and buy something new yeah and, and i mean there's so many easier ways than uh, going the full danger home route so to say i mean these days you can just go online and get some new decal kits or or whatever and totally remake the look of your bike so it's really something i encourage people to do I just, I want to take a left turn for a second away from bikes. And I want to know if you're a crazy person about other things in life. Like, do you have a car in your garage <laughs> that is just like, just 
perfect or or like some crazy coffee machine or is there is there something going on other you know <laughs> elsewhere in your life that's similar to these crazy bikes <laughs> well not on this level for sure my, my i kind of feel like a, a soccer mom uh, just uh, driving around in a volkswagen and uh, otherwise ah uh, yes mu- music swedish metal is, <laughs> music is is a big thing for me <laughs> but uh yeah so so cycling has always been like my my main hobby and passion and source for training and whatever but of course i enjoy other things too it's just not on this level let's let's go back to the first time you put that big pointy knife up against a frame (laughs) yeah (laughs) i remember it very well (laughs) yeah take take, uh, take me there when was this uh it was in um very early in 2017, I just got a delivery of uh, my new Scott Scale SL frame. And mind you, I paid for this frame, and it was like it's 4,000 euro frame. And uh, yeah, I kind of started to realize that uh, well, I might just go all in with this bike. It's going to be super light. Might as well push it. So I started to. I had seen some, you know, road bikes that were stripped super light ones. And uh, but there's not really that much information on how to do it, or at least it wasn't. <clears throat> so uh, yeah, I kind of read some short forum posts that said like, "Oh, you need to scrape it with a knife like this," and so on. So yeah, one day I simply <laughs> I, I started at the bottom of the chain stay because if I fucked up, it wouldn't be as easy to to tell. <laughs> <laughs> how much do you save? How much weight did you save on a frame like that? Uh, I saved about 95 grams and usually I would say that a, a paint job on a frame is probably somewhere around 60 to 150 grams. That process of stripping the paint off with a knife so I, I watched you have an Instagram video that kind of shows you how to do it and I have this Mondraker mm-hmm. uh, what do, it's a Levy how can you forget the name? I don't know. <laughs> you literally invented the name. I don't want to say the name. <laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> so anyways, I had it on the rack and I had the sharp knife and I'm like, man, this would look sick if it was bare carbon. So I kind of flipped it upside down. You know, I picked a spot on the underside of the chainstay and I took this knife to this thing and I made one scrape and then I made another scrape and then I got scared and I thought this is going to take me all fucking day, <laughs> like all week, actually. Yeah. I mean, it depends. <clears throat> Go, it's it's a difference of, of prepping a, a paint a frame for paint because uh, then you can actually leave some of the carbon filler and stuff that is uh, already there from the factory because you want a smooth even surface. But if you're gonna do it all for for weight savings, then you want everything removed except for for the carbon, of course. And uh, I mean, some people say they do it in like 10, 12 hours, but for me, it's like 25 hours often. Hey, have you ever have you ever accidentally removed some carbon danger? <laughs> it's a tiny bit. <laughs> You're right. It happens. <laughs> right. But what 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 people need to remember is well, first that you shouldn't do it because it will void any and all warranties and can be dangerous. But I mean, frames well, lawyer are home actually... coming out here. <laughs> Yeah, I just want, to want encourage somebody. people to do dumb shit. <laughs> I don't want them to face plant because of me. <laughs> I want them to do cool shit, not dumb shit. <laughs> but yeah, people need to know that 
almost all carbon frames are sanded to some extent already at the factory because when they come out of the mold they're a little bit un uneven and so on so uh, my highly uh, unscientific uh, opinion is that there is a small margin uh, of error when it comes to sanding but of course you want to keep it to the to a minimum have you ever wrecked a frame by stripping the paint no not even close that's why it takes 25 hours <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me that if i do it i should take my time and not just try to do it all in a few hours yeah definitely levy i have a suggestion unpaid intern <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking so about Casmer? When can I come over? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I give you a pink bike sticker pack, Danger. <laughs> oh man. I'm in. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> well, speaking of compensation, I know like Scott's been sponsoring a bunch of your builds. Like, do they provide frames for you to, to mess up now? Uh yeah, I've been getting some some frames in the last two years. But uh, everything up until then was was paid for. And like, are they scared of what you're doing? Like, I feel like a lot of brands would look at what you do and go like, do we want to encourage this? I don't know. And then have a bunch of meetings about it. <laughs> well, I heard some rumors that the warranty guys weren't too happy about it in the, in the first place. <laughs> but <laughs> which I fully understand. But uh, yeah, I guess they realized that I was serious about what i'm doing so uh, that, that's why i'm getting away with it i guess so all of your projects right now they've been based on scott frames and you're obviously supported by scott but is there something that you would like to do that's maybe even farther out there we see some pretty some pretty exotic stuff from other brands do you have anything else that you would like to look at other brands obviously the grim donut you'd like to strip yeah. the grim donut obviously Just sand it down <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, to make it a little bit more dangerous, especially I want to sand some off the head tube area. That oh would God. be my personal favorite. <laughs> 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 no, but for sure, I, I, I do have quite a lot of dream projects, actually, uh, because, uh, I mean, I am a, a bike nerd and I always think about bikes. So I have some, some, some ideas that are pretty different to what I'm doing now. I would, for example, love to do like some... Uh, full titanium hardtail like gravel mountain bike stuff you know fully rigid and uh, just make it super sleek and have a like one piece titanium handlebar and, and stuff like that so so that would definitely be be one of my my bigger dreams i also have some wild ideas that i mean just to to get a certain type of look for bikes i would love to like build some mad max looking kind of think a cross-country bike but with a low and aggressive dual crown just for the heck of it and yeah things like that so plenty of ideas but we'll see what the future brings right <laughs> so you're definitely not limiting yourself to mountain bikes in the future you may be thinking about some other things that are not on single track yeah absolutely i mean yeah. i love bikes period then i prefer to to ride downward bikes but i mean i I started out with BMX and uh, I've enjoyed building some like many years ago. I built a few coaster brake bikes like cruisers and stuff. So, so yeah, if it, if you can make it look good or ride well or both preferably, then, then I'm in. You've 
You've got quite the Instagram following now. Has anybody reached out to you to purchase anything you've done or maybe ask you to do a project for them? There's been a, just a, not, not even a handful. I mean, people reach out, but some are not very serious. But I remember there was one uh, when, I, when I built that World's Lightest 29er, the like 13-pound bike. There was someone who was keen to, to buy it. But uh, at that point, I, I didn't want to sell it. I mean, I just spent like over a year building it. So I wanted to enjoy it first for a while. What about on the other side in terms of sponsorship? Do, uh, you know, you've got 80 something thousand Instagram followers. Do you get people asking you to promote like headphones or other dumb shit? Been getting some, some, some stupid <laughs> stuff like how, how much, okay, how much, or, or how much do I have to pay? How much do I have to pay to get get these these head tube spacers that I've been making in the 3D printer on your next build? I know I need you to compromise your no head tube, no spacers morals. You can't slam that stem. I'm willing to pay tens of dollars. How much? Tens of dollars. Tens. Well, I mean, um, like if you stick in this bike industry thing, you're going to be a hundred air in no time. Well, I mean, I could actually we, we could say about three fifty for you, uh, and we and we're good to go. Perfect. Yeah. Look at this thing. <laughs> Two grams right there. It's actually pretty impressive. You know, they are like, yes, I mean, there's this uh, European ultra lightweight component maker called Extra Light, mm -hmm. naturally. Mm -hmm. And they actually, I think they make some, some 3D printed uh, spacers and, and sell for some good money. So maybe you're onto something yeah. here. Yeah, and <laughs> I've seen those and they don't look very nice. Mine are nicer. <laughs> so do you do like uh, custom uh, logos or, or sure, can I have sure, it? one with my name? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Costs like eighty six yeah, cents in materials to make too, or less. <laughs> yeah, so so it's going to be like what twenty twenty bucks? Sure, sure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I'm going to call say that everything I manufacture though is a is purely an art piece, and nobody should ever use it in a functional environment. Well, and a lot of your builds, Danger, they uh, there's some comments on them that focus on uh, how they how... hold up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and when you're out on these trails, have you ever had something fail that you've worked on? Has have you taken things too far? I've actually only had a few like uh, weird warranty issues that isn't really related to what i've been doing like think uh <clears throat> pedal insert coming loose in a carbon crank arm or, or some stuff like that right. but uh otherwise for actually breaking stuff uh, no not not really actually i mean i denting a few rims and i broken one carbon rim and that's pretty much it actually and you're not like a you're not a safe rider either. You you push these bikes the way that for their whatever intended purpose. Yeah, definitely push them. But uh, I guess I I do have a more of a smooth riding style than a hack riding riding style. So I guess that helps a bit. But especially, I mean, for if if I build a downhill bike, I mean that one is built to be ridden. Have any brands ever ever just said like, no, please don't. Like, don't put our um, bar on that bike, please. No, not really. I've been asked to, to not use logos, uh, but but that's it. Because, yeah, I guess uh, if something would break, they're scared that the logo is going to be there. And the people are going to assume that it's a stock product. 
What about these commenters that are saying like, you know, oh, he's shaving 10 grams off of this. He's shaving 50 grams off here. You know, what does it matter? I could have a shit before I go for a ride and I lose a pound and a half. What would you say to those people? I mean, you can have fun on a bike. That I mean, my first proper downhill bike was a 20 kilo specialized bigot with double whites and you name it. So I loved that bike. And uh, yeah, of course, you don't have to care about shaving weight of your bike, but it does make a, a difference on how the bike rides, for sure. What what kind of difference, though? So you have a you have a thirty pound downhill bike, Gustav. What is it like to ride a thirty pound downhill bike? Well, the thing I find that uh, most people tend to forget about is that there are more to to a bike than just the weight that creates stability, because people always think that they will be super flimsy. But I mean, a downhill bike, if you have a proper slack and low and long uh, geometry and you have some uh, heavy rotational weight from proper downhill tires, that thing is actually pretty stable to, to ride. But still, if you need to like, for example, you, you need to switch lines or whatever, so you can way more easily just pick the bike up and move it around beneath you. So so that is often like... The, the main benefits the same with cross-country bikes if you're doing a technical climb it's so easy to just move the bikes around and, and get them where you want them to be that's been my problem i just don't ever have light enough bikes that's uh, that's why i struggle with technical climbing <laughs> yeah I, it, I, uh, <laughs> and that is the the worst part i guess with with my bikes i have no excuses left so yeah it, it, if i'm slow it's it's just me <laughs> so i i am curious about we see kind of the pendulum swing back and forth in terms of how much weight matters. And there's certainly data to show that in terms of energy, like it's really easy to go like, Oh yeah. If you're carrying an extra 10 pounds or five pounds of bike up the, up the hill, it, it takes more energy to get it up the hill. But there is this sort of, it's coming, the pendulum is swinging back and you see a lot of people saying specifically that there are bikes that are too light are slower descending. Do you feel like there's any truth to that? Do you do you subscribe yeah, to that I, Instagram? Yeah, I actually, I actually hashtag do because <laughs> because uh, the 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 main factor of, of a fast bike is that the rider is feeling comfortable on it, and I mean if if you're you're not comfortable, you're not going fast. But as for me, I'm I'm very used to to riding light bikes, and I I really enjoy it and. Uh, I feel I can trust them and push them just as hard as a heavy bike. So so I, I can say that I'm faster on a on a light bike, but might not be the same for, for the next guy. Is there I mean that's a man, very, very on the fence. Like what if what if you could have the same strength of a forty pound properly built downhill bike at I don't know, fifteen pounds or ten pounds? Like do you think mm -hmm. Like, where would you, where would it be weird? Is there a too light? Well, yeah. I, strength yeah, aside, sure. strength aside. <laughs> I mean, I did take my, my like 16 pound cross country fully to the bike park and hit some sweet jumps on it. And yeah, that was sketchy as, as yeah, very sketchy. <laughs> so was that just sketchy because you were worried about it breaking or what did it just feel weird descending? No, no, it feels weird taking off the jumps. Mm. I mean, it's, it's so light that you actually, it's so easy to just get thrown off track uh, a little bit or so, so yeah, it's, and it's also, 
I mean, you can get used to it. I mean, you have these BMX pros riding like 10 kilo BMX bikes and doing like double backflips and whatever. So, of course, you can get used to jumping a, a light bike too. But uh, there is some truth to, to that a bike can be too light. But uh, it varies a lot on, uh, on the rider, on what type of bike it is. And yeah, my, my reason is that, I mean, if I build a, a super light like, like that, worst light as 29 and downhill bike, if I would feel that it's too light, then I can just, I mean, just put some heavier tires on there or, or whatever, and, and I'm good to go. I mean, there, there's, you can always, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to make a bike a little bit heavier. So, Can we, I want to I ask you about the intense suspension on that downhill bike, Gustav. What does that hover shock feel like? I've never ridden one of those. It was actually quite mind-blowing the, the first run I did on it. Because just over the first like 200 meters, I was actually thinking that there was something wrong with my bike <laughs> because it, it, it really was like super smooth in, in the rear. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's very impressive for, for being a, an air shock, I would say. I mean, it, it's extremely supple. So, so I, I would actually say that <clears throat> the thing is that since, since I started building downhill bikes again a couple of years ago, only been on intent forks so i can't really compare them to like a boxer or something but i mean i have spent a lot of time on, on like a fox 36 grip 2 and so on and i would kind of say that there's a bigger difference on the rear shock performance wise than it, than is with the with the forks the forks the damping are, are good the, the forks differ more in how they handle with the, you know being upside Chassis. down having mm -hmm. a yeah. completely mm -hmm. different chassis and we should say that that sub 30 pound gambler downhill bike, you had tire inserts, you had four piston brakes with 200 millimeter rotors, and you had proper downhill casing tires as well. Has that thing, that thing has been reliable? You haven't had any issues with it? Yeah, it, it's been really great. I mean, I've, I've pretty much destroyed the, the rear wheel, so I got to change the, the rim just from dents and, you know, regular that's, I feel like that's, I, that's I consider, expected on the back of a downhill bike, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a consumable. It's a wear part rims. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, it's, it's been. Uh, I can hear people been, angrily like, typing as we say that. I know. I once had Troy Brosnan tell me that if he finished a run at a World Cup and his rear wheel wasn't destroyed, he probably wasn't going fast enough. So, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the, that, that's, I mean, <clears throat> that's actually, I, I was quite the, the skeptic for, for many years about tire and such. Because I, I kind of leaned towards the Jesko heavier casing style. I mean, people were talking so much about how it was <clears throat> almost mainly for, for rim protection. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's the thing that with, with the InSearch, I mean, I, I do feel that they improve the, the, the ride quality. And they do protect the rims and especially help you not get pinch flats. But, I mean, you can still, for sure, destroy rims. I mean, it, it is just foam after all. So, uh, so yeah, downhill bikes and, and rims. That, that's why I didn't go carbon uh, on, on the rims for that bike. I, I wanted to, I expected them to break. How much planning goes into these projects, Gustav? Are, are you weighing everything with the gram scale, putting those numbers into Google Doc? Do you... Do you pick a number? Like, do you say, hey, I want this downhill bike to weigh X, and then 
it's all hands on deck, all money on deck, trying to get that thing to be as light as possible. <laughs> well, often maybe you get like an idea of what might be possible to do. But uh, with the downhill bike, uh, I actually had like pretty much no idea what what it would end up being. I was hoping like, yeah, if I could get it like to 13.5 kilos, uh, which is like 30 pounds, then, uh, then it would be great. But uh, I didn't really know how much below that I could go. So I know, when, I know that you do have a spreadsheet. I'm sure you have spreadsheets for your actually builds. Actually not. <laughs> no, I promise you. I don't. What? Brian, Brian just wanted yeah. to talk about spreadsheets. Yeah. I yeah, know there's it. There's no way. There's no way. You even <laughs> no. post them on, on Pinkbike afterwards with the story. Yeah, it, it's, it's it the after. last thing. It's Is the it last okay? thing I, I do. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask if, so, if, your, if your like weight projections before a build end up like how close they are afterwards because people always forget about like the grease and the you know that the zip ties and the chain lube and the, oh i forgot i don't have that that frame weight that claimed frame weight was without without the chain stay protector and all that stuff really adds up yeah well uh, i've always uh, kind of had a high margin and i expect them to be heavier than they end up being uh, with one exception and that was the the red uh, spark I built that was going to be sub eight kilos. So there I had like a very specific uh, weight goal, and uh, it ended up being like fifty grams too heavy. And that is fifty grams too heavy when you have like a full carbon derailleur. So you're pretty yeah. Those last grams are incredibly difficult to <laughs> to spend. So uh, yeah, that Did that, you just that was some extra goals. <laughs> yeah i mean if if i sand the frames internally no one can see it right <laughs> right <laughs> you you go to some super extreme measures though like we're talking an xx1 derailleur you push the pins out you're replacing the knuckles with carbon knuckles you're replacing the steel pins with carbon pins so i've i've taken a a SRAM derailleur and Shimano derailleurs apart and all that kind of stuff. It's not the easiest thing to do <laughs> without wrecking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, the first derailleur I actually disassembled was uh, my fully hydraulic Acros, Acros. Uh, <laughs> system. <laughs> and no worries. I'm telling no you, pressure. <laughs> no worries. No pressure. I mean, this was 2016 and it was like a 800 euro system. And I really didn't want to mess up. <laughs> so I actually like took a, a piece of paper and I drew like squares on it. And I took photos of everything. I mean, I, step, for, step by step when I was pulling it apart. So it did work out, but I was a bit nervous. It's like me working on a car, like a hundred photos oh. before I touch anything. Like, <laughs> ah! I'm almost scared of cars. I mean, I wish I could work on them, but there's so much going on. And yeah. <laughs> That's the thing with bikes. Bikes, you say that, Gustav, but bikes have like all these like little tiny, tiny little pieces. And, you know, the torque is so super low and you need like a 0.2 millimeter hex key and this and that. Where cars, cars is just like, pass me the big hammer and I need that Salzal to cut this door off. You know? <laughs> yeah, Levy, let's talk about how, how your car's running right now. Let's keep it on bikes, Brian. <laughs> keep it on task. They're just so easy to work on. No big well, spe spe speaking of that, it was actually quite funny because uh, since I started doing like uh, bi bike build videos, 
I get so many comments because my favorite tool of all time is this, you know, multi-hex tool from, from Park Tools. These little the blue star. ones with all the sizes in one. Yeah. And I mean, I've been using that one since I started wrenching with bikes. And I still use them a lot. I mean, I have a, a synchronous torque wrench now. But, I mean, people were just like, he's assembling a bike for like 12,000 euros with a fucking multi-tool. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I know what torque this is. <laughs> it's you have it, your torque wrench is right in your elbow, right? It just clicks. Yeah, or, or my wrist. It just right. <laughs> Sometimes, Gustav, you're not even using bolts, though. Tell me about that schmolky stem and handlebar. Like the thing was already light, and then you, and then you were like, "Yeah, I don't need these bolts." What, what were you doing there? <laughs> Well, I, I got one of my stupid ideas, I get, <laughs> I guess. So uh, <clears throat> I had seen similar things done and uh, <clears throat> might as well confess that I don't do any carbon work myself when it comes to actually like making stuff. So uh, there's this uh, local carbon repair guy who helps me out with that. So usually I come up with a stupid idea and, uh, well, Many things you can actually, like, just with some logical thinking, you can kind of guess, is will this actually be possible or, or not? Uh, but, yeah, I come up with some ideas, and uh, he helps me make them, make them reality. I have a question about some of the things you've made. Um, and I, Sorry, Levy, if you were about to ask this, but it's about um, your twin lock system. And you've got a... You know the the much maligned in pink bike reviews uh, twin lock system. It is on, stupid. It is it is not ideal. But what you've you've taken an interesting approach to it and done some very to me. Uh, I'll let you explain it. But there's some very cool things you're doing with the twin lock system. What I I think I might am I'm just trying to remember. Did you? I feel like I saw prototypes of that or or a version of you trying to mess with twin lock stuff even even on that 2017 build. You've been trying to do yeah, some that, stuff with that for a long yeah. time. Yeah, well the the first version I, I did was to to make it like uh, matchmaker compatible <laughs> so I could uh, mount one straight to the brake levers. And you had somebody CNC and, that. Uh, that. No, that was actually just me getting out the the saw and, and files and stuff and and just doing it. And uh, then uh, for the Scott Genius build I did, uh, where our big goal was to integrate as much as possible when it came to get rid of some cables, the original idea was actually to have a, a CNC machined custom version with the built-in uh, DI2 electronical shift buttons just to get everything super streamlined. But as I've learned, it's not always that easy to actually get CNC stuff made <laughs> custom. So after like forever, a year maybe, I, I gave up on the idea. And uh, that's when I came up with, with my own version. So I, I actually I take a twin lock, which usually has three modes, and it's for the front fork and rear shock and uh, then I put a cable splitter inside the frame so there goes one cable from the twin lock 
and then it splits so you have one cable going to the rear shock and one to the dropper post so with just one uh, remote you could uh, actually control all three things so what what happens when you push that thumb lever on that twin lock remote into the middle like from the first position to the second yeah position, what happens yeah so so what you need is a three position uh, rear shock because then you have it in open mode as regular push once and you get it the rear shock into traction mode and uh, then i have simply like removed the third and final click in the in the twin lock so when you push it again it pulls the wire in the rear shock but it also pulls the the dropper wire at the same time but it goes back to traction mode so effectively it becomes a just a dropper remote in in that mode so, so you push you can push through yeah and actuate the dropper and actuate the dropper or you yeah. can leave it in the second position yeah where so, the dropper and the shock are tied together yeah they're tied together so so the idea is that uh, i mean say say i i am in in open mode with a seat lowered then i can just uh, push all the way through and uh, release and then uh, i raise the seat and the shock stays in in traction mode then if i go to a descent i push once to actuate the dropper then I click the release lever, the second lever on the twin lock to, to get the shock back into open. And I'm ready to go. So that sounds exactly like what people have been talking about for years. I think, Brian, we've seen, didn't BMC do something like that on their World Cup XC bike where they had the rear shock tied into the dropper post? But other than that, I don't think we've ever seen this, have we? And then it's a little bit, it's a little bit different than what, what BMC's doing. Um, and you just, just so I understand... Because you don't have the twin lock system attached to your fork at all, right? No, but you could. But yeah, why but would you? you? But why yeah. would you? <laughs> yeah, definitely do <laughs> <No>. not. <laughs> I, I haven't. I haven't uh, built it for a cross country bike. Yeah. I actually, I, I'm going to say that that I will never own a proper cross country bike without uh, a lockout and uh, preferably so a remote. Europe. You're so European right <laughs> I know. now. I know. Okay, I got I have a real oh live European on the line right now. What's the deal? The yes. bike is efficient. Why do you why well maybe not that specific. I mean it's made around a lockout, but <laughs> if you could have a bike without a lockout, wouldn't you rather? Hey Levy. Hey Mike yeah, Levy. What? what? You know they make these really cool <laughs> automatic shifting uh derailers now. We could put that on your bike, so you just never have to think about it ever again. Why don't, do you want one of those? I'll get you one. No, no, I don't well, want that. <laughs> I, I can I can give you my, my reasons for for why I always want one, and that is simply because if you're used to doing some, if you if you even tried like once doing a, a marathon race, and uh, you actually, for example, you you are a bunch of riders and you hit the corner and you go out on a open gravel road or something everyone's out of the seat start sprinting i mean goes well, that's their fast. problem they then, need to sit then, down and take their time exactly <laughs> and, that, and that's my point if you always sit down well sure then then it's then it's fine but if you're actually standing up and pedaling then then you want to look out right all right so one thing i was very disappointed to see is that your collaboration with Bicycle Pubes called Danger Pubes actually got more likes than the Grim Donut. And um, that really hurts me deep inside. Um, tell me about this abomination of a bike. First of all, it's actually beautiful. I like the 
height of performance engineering today in 2021. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it looks <laughs> like twenty. Fun... It looks like a personification of twenty twenty in bicycle form. <laughs> it's horrific. Yeah, well, for for people who don't know, uh, bicycle pubes. He runs this amazing uh, Instagram account where he makes fun of uh, the bicycle industry with these amazing MS Paint drawings. And yeah, we set out to to do a, a collab bike, and uh, well, he's all about. Stupid ideas, Crocs, Brooks saddles, and uh, yeah, a bit of gravel uh, adventure cycling on top of that. So uh, we simply took all our worst ideas, and uh, I just actually made them reality. You so took all the bad ideas and put them together into one good one. <laughs> it's it's so bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's so bad. It's good. It really is. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually, some some things were kind of funny because when I built it, I was like, "Wait a minute, this is actually like this could look, look really good." I mean, I set out to do this like poo brown paint job, and ended up being like, "Man, I, I actually want this paint job. It's great." <laughs> so so I kind of had to like actually do my best to make it worse because it sometimes felt like it, this is looking too good <laughs> but but yeah it, it was uh, it was so funny because i was kind of thinking that well this is very like niche humor and i, I wasn't sure if it was actually going to be that that popular if people were even gonna get it and uh, also i mean i come from the mountain bike background and we did some uh, like more gravel bike pack inspired yokes, so to say, with that one. And I was thinking that, well, maybe I'm kind of out of my <coughs> out on deep waters here. But yeah, everyone loved it. So uh, they especially enjoyed how I <coughs> attached the spare tube by drilling the tube and uh, just bolting it onto the bike. That seemed to be a, a favorite. For everybody listening, there will be pictures included in the article, so you can go have a look at this wild creation. <laughs> <laughs> all right should we finish on a on a on a you know cleanse the palate with that uh that white scott spark yeah something oh, something a so little nice. less brown yeah that scott yeah. what do you what do you call it gustav it's the it's the the hyper spark hyper spark what is yeah. your goal Jeez, with this yeah, bike <laughs> yeah well that that one the main goal is to to simply a build a uh, pretty much the the fastest cross country marathon mountain bike possible, but also and almost most importantly, I wanted to build a, a mountain bike that kept all the function, but with a completely clean cockpit with no visible cables, just like on a arrow road bike. I mean, every road bike released today is super clean, no cables, and I mean the 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 look is kind of cool. So how are you how are you going about that? How are you doing this? Um. Yeah, I've actually kind of been working on it for four years. <laughs> I was trying to build a, a hardtail. <laughs> yeah, in 2016, I actually yeah, had a custom handlebar made and everything for internal routing, but didn't work out. And uh, then uh, a bit over two years ago, I started on this project. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like evolved over time. I mean, there are some crucial components to making it happen, like the wireless SRAM axis. Uh, shifting and dropper helps a lot and also i'm using the fox live valve uh, automatic electronic suspension system uh, 
so I don't need the remote cables. And uh, but yeah, there's been a, a ton of ton of work. Wait, 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 wait! You're just glossing over something here, though. What? Where are your shifters on this bike? I looked on the Instagram and I and I didn't see any Axis shifters hanging off that handlebar. <laughs> what are you using there? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm using there's a, a, a small Swiss company called uh, Sirbel that makes this little. They are like a, a hybrid between a trigger and a grip shift because there is like a little trigger lever that uh, sits on a ring on a shift ring, so you either push down or push backwards backwards with the back of your th- thumb. And uh, to make it happen, I actually had to take the axis shifters apart, and uh, then uh, these have been soldered on to the PCB unit inside the, the shifters. So the shifters have cables going under the grip, and all the electronics sits inside the handlebars. As so, do yeah, that, that's, the brake lines, I think. Yeah, the brake lines also go through the handlebars, and uh, the dropper lever is the same uh, as the shifter. So should I just go into my garage and drill a couple holes in my handlebar and put the brake lines in? What did you do to get those lines in there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it depends if you want any more gold tooths or or if you're good with it. Drilling handlebars is never a good idea. Don't but, drill your handlebar, yeah, people. Uh, the hand- <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, the handlebars are, are drilled. Uh, they have been uh, carbon reinforced externally. And I put a ton of work, uh, finishing work on top of that just to make it look very stock. And uh, then you have the cables going into the steer tube. One goes straight down the fork, the, the front brake, obviously. Uh, and uh, there's a, a hole in the back of the steer tube for the rear brake hose to enter into the frame. And if you have a cable entering into the frame from your steer, you don't want to no rotate bars, your handlebars. No bar spins for you. No, no bar spins for your kids. So I had to, well, obviously the, the Spark doesn't have a, a steering stop system. So I had to make a steering stop system myself, which was a lot of work, but... Yeah, now it's Isn't, it's up and running. Don't people make like a steering stop headset that you could yeah, install? Yeah, the, the problem is yeah, the problem is that uh, uh, the Spark uses a that a, would be too simple. Dri- That's the goddamn problem. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> too heavy. That would be too simple. <laughs> it, it uses a, a, a drop set, and mm. uh, those uh, that are made, those are pressed in. Right. Yeah. So so there was a lot of obstacles obstacles to overcome, but two years and now it's done. So. You've, you obviously do a lot of modifications to parts. How much time do you spend looking at these things after riding them? Are you, are you checking that handlebar after you go for a ride? Are you checking steer tubes, things that you've changed? Not really, actually. I mean, I, the, the people, some people, I guess, just think that I, I do sketchy stuff. Uh, and well, while it is kind of sketchy, there is a lot of thought uh, going into it. And uh, also, I mean, since I do have, have help with uh, from people who are, I mean, good at this stuff. I mean, for example, my carbon repair workman, all he does all days is repairing frames. In, so, I mean, he's good with carbon and knows what holds up and not. So, uh, yeah, if possible, we, we actually, yeah, I, I always say, build it as strong as possible. Uh, it doesn't matter about weight when we do mods like that. It seems like there is kind of a build list 
for the Danger Home special. So it seems like if you want to go out and do some of this stuff or or get a bike down that road, there's kind of, I don't know, five or six companies that you buy from and a few things that you do. Would you, without without the drilling and the and the modifications, what would you, like, who would you suggest people look at? What's sort of the stock Danger Home build? Yeah, well, uh, I guess there's two aspects to that. Mm-hmm. One is, of course, building a light bike, and uh, the other is is the look. I like clean-looking bikes. So, uh, I mean, for, for components, I mean, these days there are so many nice component manufacturers, and I prefer a lot of these, like, kind of like, you know, way back, everything was anodized and super cool and yeah, I mean, I like I like small companies. They do cool stuff. So uh, a lot of it comes from from uh, Europe. I mean, we have all this like German carbon specialists and and so on. So uh, I use a lot of that. I feel like I feel like because the, sometimes you're you know they're sending you stuff. I feel like you're not saying their names, but I think I think we should just say you know we should say you're you know the the trick stuff folks make awesome brakes and you run a lot of yeah. trick stuff brakes you run um for the carbon bars and stems and things you do it's Schmolke Schmolke. or and then yeah. small parts is hop yeah um, you use a lot of garbrook cassettes and chain rings yeah what else definitely uh, a SRAM. Uh, i actually i, I would th- this is gonna hurt a few feelings but uh, i wouldn't run a shimano mechanical shifting system even if i got paid to do it whoa yeah <laughs> whoa strong feelings <laughs> but yeah it, it's uh they, they shift great i just don't like the ergonomics of the of the shifter so simple as that i bet but, you know uh, some people that could change that though yeah probably <laughs> but shift <laughs> shifting is difficult i mean there's always these patterns and whatever mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah but um but I have some, some some great help over the the years with some some custom stuff. I mean, I've been getting help from uh, well paid for in the, in the first place. But and there's this Slovenian uh, carbon specialist called Berk who does a lot of uh, road stuff, and uh, he's made this super cool one piece integrated seat post that just stupid light. And yeah, there, there's a lot of cool companies if you look around a bit. It, you, you know, it's the late night Instagram K-hole you just fall into. Hmm. <laughs> and then you wake yeah. up and your wallet's really light. You're like, what the hell happened last night? <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's like 10 really light UPS boxes on your doorstep. They just feel empty. Some things are just stupid. I mean, I, I did have this like six gram bottle cage. And I mean, a bottle cage is a certain size at least. So you get a box and it just, yeah, it's empty. empty. Six and grams? Was it like a regular bottle cage, or was it like yeah. a like it, the, it's eight grams including the bolts? And it looks like a like a bottle cage. Yeah, <laughs> it that's does. wild. But, uh, and, and that was actually the the reinforced version. They did have a lighter one before that too. It's a German company called Carbon Works. Wow, leaving no stones unturned. No did, stones. <laughs> but that one did it? Did it work? Did you keep it? Did it break? No, it actually works great. the The problem is that it's made of out of uh, hollow carbon tubes. Mm-hmm. So if you use it for like several seasons in the mud, 
the, the tubes or the protection will probably be gone from the tubes, so you sand through them, so to say. But it's, you could wear it's lighter in your bottle cage. Yeah, it's just lighter that way. Speed holes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speed holes, yeah. Adding <laughs> lightness. I mean, that's how it all started. I mean, the first thing I drilled was uh, when I was uh, doing trials riding. And you built this stupid heavy aluminium bash guards and everything. And I started drilling stuff. So yeah, drilling was my first mod, I guess. <laughs> oh, nothing's lighter than a hole. Right. <laughs> so Gustav, I want to wrap it up with a couple questions. One, are you wearing short yeah. denim shorts right now? Is there anything else people wear? Stupid question. I know. <laughs> yeah. Second, yeah. what's your favorite Motorhead song and why? Uh, that's actually a, g- a good question, uh, but probably maybe on parole, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I like how much thought one. you put into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the most difficult question of, the <laughs> of this whole talk. <laughs> All right, Gustav. Thanks for your time today. Never stop being crazy and keep us in the loop on all this insane shit that you're doing to your bikes. I cannot wait to see this Scott Spark Hyper thing with no cables that you're working on. Uh, Let us know when it's done. Maybe send it my way. I want to ride it. (laughs) Maybe we can work out a trade. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should do that. I'll send the Grim Donut. And you get like a... (laughs) I'll send you the the Grim Grim Donut. donut, Not your spacers. (laughs) And you send me that bike without any cables and we'll do a review of each other's bikes. Hopefully I'll get the donut back. It'll be 10 pounds lighter. <laughs> yeah. It's that's what, about what idea. a head tube, what about what a head tube weighs? <laughs> don't, don't be picky. Well, no, but yeah, thanks a lot for, for having me. All right, everybody, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our interview with danger the crazy man that he is. I think I'm going to close my computer, head into my shop, and see what kind of strange bikes I can create out of all the parts I have. Stay tuned for next week. We'll see you then.